Hello, I'm Alex Zane, film journalist, movie fan, and your host for a trip to the movies. I'm a Pisces, I have a dog called Simon, and I don't believe in wearing shorts. Thank you very much for downloading the show. We've got a brilliant guest on the way. This episode is brought to you by Odeon, and if you've been to watch a film at Odeon lately, you'll know that nothing beats that cinematic feeling. It's not just about stuffing your face with delicious popcorn, although let's be honest, that helps. It's your hair standing on end, your palms sweating, and being transported somewhere magical. It's feeling every footstep of some giant lumbering monster, its car chasers, space battles and your heart beating out of your chest. It's about feeling cinematic and nobody does that better than Odium. Head to odium.co.uk or download their app to book your next adventure today. And if you'd like to watch today's interview in glorious Technicolor, then head over to our YouTube channel and subscribe. And for all the latest updates and to get in touch, you'll find us at Trip to Movies Pod on all social media. Right then, time to introduce today's guest, who I interviewed last week in our Soho studio, a mile beneath the streets of London. If you're ready, let's do this. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week a special guest takes us on their perfect night out at the cinema. This week we are joined by an incredible filmmaker who scared the life out of us in 2020 with his terrifying Zoom-inspired horror movie, Host, and is now back to have us sleeping with the lights on again with his adaptation of one of Stephen King's most unsettling stories in his big screen version of The Boogeyman. Here to tell us about that movie, as well as taking us on his perfect night out at the cinema, it's the hugely talented Rob Savage. Hey, hey. how's it going? I'm all right. Welcome, uh, welcome to this very, very lovely day in yeah. the capital. I know we're in a little bunker underground, mm, a mile <laughs> under the streets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah it's apt. <laughs> it's good to have you here, though, um, because uh, I mean, obviously, it's subjective, but for me. Of the literally hundreds of stories Stephen King has written, The Boogeyman is the scariest. I read it at 14 yeah. in his compilation Night Shift, and it screwed me up. When did you first discover the story? You know, I think I might have been around the same age. Like I started out reading his short stories. I, I mean, I wasn't a huge reader as a kid, so I started with the short stories because they were kind of, it was almost like forbidden fruit. My parents said, you know, stay away from Stephen King. He's, <laughs> he's a wronger. And... Uh, so immediately, that's all I wanted to read. I can't remember if it was Night Shift that I read first, but I read a bunch of his short story collections. And at first, I was kind of, you know, I was, I was drawn more to the kind of like garish and violent short stories, like the Mangler um, mm. at first, just because I was a little gore hound. But I remember reading The Boogeyman and not quite getting it, but getting that there was something there that was very disturbing on a level that I probably wasn't ready for as a kid, as a 13, 14 year old. Because it's very. It's this, it kind of exists, this intersection between fantastical, silly, you know, it's the boogeyman, but it's also got this dose of real world horror, tragedy, trauma that felt a bit much for me at the time. And I remember it kind of stuck with me and it kind of left an, an aftertaste in my mouth that some of the other stories didn't. And it was, always, it was always there in my mind. And when I first got the script, I immediately remembered how it made me feel as a kid, that kind of feeling of there being this... this this darkness just under the surface. It's um, it's a trauma, and I'm not going to spoil it because I think if you haven't read the Boogeyman, I don't want to start talking about the story in too much detail, mm. so you can watch the movie with fresh eyes. But let's just say I understand why perhaps the trauma didn't hit you as a kid because, and this is keeping it as vague as possible, you don't have kids, and yeah. that's the difference. Yes, no, and that's it. And I mean, that was kind of what we were, you know, we this this movie's been in development a long time and we're trying to figure out exactly the best way to tell this story because it's gotta be you know, the boogeyman, you can come at the boogeyman from from 
two angles. It's like it's the first way as a kid that you start to understand that there's a nasty evil out in the world that, that might be lurking in the darkness in your bedroom. There might be something out there that wants to, you know, do you harm. And that, so you can kind of tell it from that kid's perspective, which everyone can relate to. Everyone remembers that feeling of waking up as a kid in a dark room and thinking your sweater that you've hung over the back of your chair is a person standing there and all that. But then it's also, you can take it from the point of view of um, the parent, which is basically, you know, the boogeyman is, is, is almost like a kind of, um, like a kind of fairy tale way of introducing kids to the idea of, the idea of this darkness that exists out there in the world. And you kind of, um, you know, it's it's a hurdle that parents. I'm not a I'm not a parent. You know, knock on wood, I never will be. But <laughs> but, um, but it's but it's a hurdle. It's a hurdle that that most parents have to have to um, jump through. You know, you can't kind of like keep your kids wrapped in cotton wool forever. At some point, mm. you've got to introduce them to to all the darkness out there. So you get the script for the Boogeyman from a Quiet Place writers uh, Scott Beck and Mark Woods, along with Mark Heyman. What is it about the script that speaks to you? Is there one? iota of an idea in that script that made you go this is the next project for me i tell you what there were two scenes because it was a very different script we, me and mark Heyman, like i worked with mark Heyman. i didn't work with um with beck and woods although i think they're, they're brilliant um and we developed it into something very different but there were two things that beck and woods did that i thought was just inspired and the first one was the big one they cracked the idea of like how to take this short story and adapt it into a 90 minute feature because for anyone who's read the short story, you know it basically takes place in a room. It's two characters talking. It's a therapy session. Mm. Not the most cinematic thing in the world. And, uh, you know, it kind of hints at a lot of ideas, but it's not, um, it's not the most straightforwardly adaptable short story that King's ever written. They came up with this great idea of having the short story basically be like act one. Mm. And then, uh, you know, this character of Lester Billings, who in the short story is coming to tell his story to, to, um, to therapist Will Harper uh, about this creature that may have killed his three kids. Um, you have that character enter into the story and basically become the kind of harbinger of doom that sets in motion this haunting that then takes over the Harper family. Um, Beckenwoods, they, they described it in a, really, in a really great way that I'm going to steal, hmm. which is that this film is basically an adaptation of the short story and a sequel to the short story all within one movie, which I liked. I thought that was genius. And then also they had this scene, which we kind of repurposed in our version of the movie, me and Mark. They had this scene where the, the, kid, um, the kid who is scared of the dark is subjected to um, exposure therapy in the form <laughs> of a flashing light that, uh, that dips them into darkness more and more and more until they're finally fully in darkness. And I read that and I was like, oh, well, that's an iconic scene right there. Mm. And, you know... Beckenwoods can do many things. Writing an iconic scene is one of their many talents. Like they know how to write a set piece. Okay, well, I was going to ask this question later, but you've kind of preempted it, so I'll, I'll ask it now. Because obviously, with the Boogeyman, monster in the closet horrors are kind of a familiar genre for people. Mm -hmm. So, I guess part of the artistry in that scene is is one of the moments that I would have picked out myself is finding new ways to scare people while they're in a familiar genre. Yes. Yeah, and that was it. Like it was it was the thing that I thought I could bring to this to this movie when I first read it. The best case scenario of this movie was something that makes you feel like that kid again being afraid of the closet, being afraid of what's under your bed and it meant taking familiar scenarios and making them fresh and making them scary again. And a lot of that was to do with 
um, the setup and the characters. A lot of that was to do with the the, the execution, and a lot of that was to do also with the um, the lighting and the cinematography. You know, Eli Bourne, our amazing cinematographer, and I we we spent a lot of time trying to work out ways in which every single set piece, every single scare, had its own visual identity. Because really, it's like the, the you know the, the the thing that you're kind of burdened with when you're making a movie about the boogeyman is everyone knows the rules and you don't really want to deviate from the rules that everyone knows in their gut because that's that's really the opportunity like we all know this creature we all know how it works we know this thing doesn't like light lives in the darkness lives under your bed lives in the closet lives in all the dark spaces in your house so there's a familiarity you're battling but then at the same time you can play with that idea of light and dark and this kind of constant battle in lots of different ways and we tried to we tried to push that as far as we can and you know taking inspiration off that flashing red light scene that was in the original script um and then utilizing things like like christmas lights and we we have this prop that's like a kind of moon mm-hmm. that glows which the, which are one of our leads sawyer carries around to stave off the darkness and so we had a lot of fun taking those familiar elements and then just trying to push them into new directions you got a great cast um when you did host, I, I remember hearing you talk about how you gave uh, your cast for host a, a crash course in horror language. Yeah. Um, here you've got uh, Yellow Jacket Sophie Thatcher mm-hmm. in the lead, who's fantastic. Uh, the brilliant David Desmalchian, who is yeah. uh, in a minor but very pivotal role in it. Mm-hmm. How much did you handhold your cast through horror? Did you need to? Was it a similar thing to host? Well, I mean, one of the great things, so 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 David Desmalchian is like, he's a huge horror fan. In fact, he'd... Um, I didn't realize this until after I, after I cast him, but he, um, he hosted the Fangori Awards and did a, did a, a spoof of Host, which I remember I'd seen. So he was a big Host <laughs> fan. Um, so he, he knows horror inside and out. He knows the story. He knows King. He knows exactly um, what he needs to do and what he needs to bring to the story. And it was kind of the same with Sophie as well. Um, I didn't watch Yellow Jackets. I watched, I watched a little bit of, of the episode. I watched her clips from, from episode one and thought she was fantastic. Mm-hmm. And, I'd seen her, and she did this indie movie called uh, Prospect a few years back, which was great. Um, but I jumped on Zoom with her, and I was wearing a, a, a T-shirt for this movie, Possession. It's very weird, um, uh, 80s, squishy, tentacly horror movie mm-hmm. that uh, not many people have seen. And she immediately said, I fucking love Possession. <laughs> and, 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 we just, and we spent a lot of the time on that first call just talking about weird, niche horror movies. and. Um, and it became clear, I mean, one, it's like it became clear that she was completely the personality to anchor this movie on because she was so, um, she's so, uh, I don't know, you just, you just immediately invest in her. She's got so much personality. She's, um, she can do that kind of resilient strength, but also, you know, she's, she's able to, to play in that kind of, I don't know, not to, not to be an Ari Aster fanboy, but that Tony Collette, Florence Pugh, like, o- o- like always teetering on the edge of traumatic breakdown, which is pretty much where she's pitching for this whole movie, mm. which is a big, big undertaking. So I could see that she was, she was ready to go there. But, it was, but it's really, it was really great because so much of the movie is her, you know, following strange noises down hallways or, or you know, trying to light a zipper lighter to stave off the creature. And, and, and you know, she understood she understood how horror movies are put together. She understands the language of horror movies. She knows that when you, you know, when you're hearing a noise from the closet, you don't just reach and open the door. You have to like hesitate. And then, you know, she, she knew the beats. Um, and so we were able to like collaborate on a level that I'm not really used to working with the cast. Like we were both there every day. 
slogging it through just exhausted and we kind of both relied on each other mm. um let's talk about the creature the boogeyman itself because i'm not going to give away uh the the world building that the, the, the film does to give you an actual history uh of what this creature is because i think that is a spoiler and i think it's fascinating to find out within the confines of the film itself but like a lot of literary creatures, when you read the book, mm. uh, the short story, apart from the famous Crawls, yeah. a lot of what the Boogeyman looks like is left to the reader's imagination. Mm -hmm. So where do you begin on designing that creature, that creature design? What's the first thing you do? Well, I gave a brief. We, 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 we worked with a lot of designers. We came up with a lot of things. We, we, we hit a lot of dead ends. The first thing was this brief. I wanted, like when I first came on, came on, to this movie i was like the the best version of this movie is one where we we're basically um reclaiming this name the boogeyman it's a bit silly it's a silly title mm -hmm. there's been 600 you know bad boogeyman movies mm -hmm. this wants to be we want to take this seriously and we want to kind of speak to this creature as something that's kind of ancient and evil and primordial and you know the boogeyman is just the word that we give it as a kid but this thing has been around forever so mm -hmm. i kind of like i painted this picture for the for the design team of like, you've got to imagine this creature stalking at the edge of a cave while a bunch of cavemen huddle around the fire, <laughs> like hoping the flame doesn't dwindle, the thing doesn't get them. It's got to feel just, a, just as at home in that kind of setting. It's something that's been around forever. As long as there's been darkness, this thing existed. So no, Okay. If, well, um, well if, we're, if, we're doing that, if we're doing a little more reveal than I was going to, I think that's fucking oh, fantastic. Okay. Well, I'll leave it there. I, no, no, no. I love it. I, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do. I think, I think the idea, because so many movies, and I think it's what marks this out as a very different kind of film to perhaps these films where there is a monster in the closet, it's always supernatural. And here mm. we are dealing with a physical creature, an yeah. apex predator mm -hmm. from beyond time. And you're like, oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah, and it's like, and it also had to be something that was that was simple and striking, and had to feel like that that, that it was like that on one end of the brief. You know, imagine imagine it this as a primordial beast, but also whatever the design is, I want it also. I want you also to draw it in crayon like a kid would draw it. So it's got to it's got to work as both. It's got to be simple enough that it can exist in crayon form, and you still go, oh yeah, that's the boogeyman. Um, because it needs, to, everyone's got their own idea of the boogeyman and it needed to be simple enough that people could still project their own fears onto it. Horror as a genre is uh, it's something that, um, and I was talking to your, your friend and, and colleague, Jed Shepard, about this. It, it, the environment in which you watch it is very key to your experience of the film. Now, Host came yeah. out during lockdown. It was like the perfect storm for that movie, which I'm sure you spotted oh, yeah. when you made it. It was a horror movie that, could be watched on your own in front of you. Best, best watched on your own on mm. your laptop. Mm. Exactly. And now the story of the Boogeyman was it was going to be on Hulu. Yeah. And now, which I love because I do believe it is the kind of movie best watched with a crowd in Completely. the dark of the cinema, it's getting a theatrical release. Take me through that evolution. Well, uh, when I, first, when I first signed on, I tried to put out of my mind that it was going to go onto streaming. I don't think any filmmaker makes a film for, for you to sit and watch it on your TV at home. We made host for your laptop, but that was a very you know, specific situation. Um, the, the kind of main idea was, um, yeah, to design this movie for the big screen, to try and make it as scary and cinematic as possible. I knew that we had this great title. We had Stephen King. We had all, you know, we had all the, everything in our favor for this movie to to flip theatrical. And there'd been a tradition of this with Smile and with um, 
I mean, Evil Dead Rise came later and Barbarian. So we kind of had it in the back of our minds that there was this possibility. I mean, you know, I wouldn't want to um, verbalize it, but I, but I, I felt like I felt like there was a possibility for this movie if it turned out well. The first test screening, um, which this would be my first time doing the test screening process in my first studio movie, so um, I thought we were going to get completely trashed. It was like um, the movie was the movie was baggy and had uh, you know we've got a CG creature and we had just like this stop motion animation that was laughable, and I just thought we were going to get torn to shreds. And then I thought that was going to affect our you know, then we we're going to have to recut the movie and everyone was going to get involved and it was going to be one of these, these nightmare studio movies that you hear about. Mm. But that didn't happen. Uh, but, you know, because we hold off the boogeyman, you don't see very much of it right near the end. The audience was so with the movie that by the time it got to our stupid stop motion bits, mm. nobody laughed. The whole cinema was with it. We got a really high score. Um, just everyone reacted to every single moment. There was, there was this huge scream when we first see the creature that... Um, it, it the, the kind of like reaction to it lasted so long that the audience completely missed the next scene. They were they <laughs> they screamed and then they talked to their neighbors next to them and there was this kind of hubbub didn't die down for about a minute. So we had to change the edit of the movie to lengthen that second scene to give some screaming time. And um and it just became clear that it was like it was uh, it was an accumulative thing. After that first scare, everyone was so on edge for the next scare to come along that it became just like this kind of joyous roller coaster ride. And um and then we showed it to Stephen King, and Stephen King loved it. And uh, oh god, how nervous were you? Because he's an honest man. He's a very honest man. I mean, he famously hates The Shining, which is <laughs> one of the greatest horror movies of all time. And uh, uh, no, we showed him. We showed him a cut that was almost it was close to finished, and um, uh, we rented out his favorite cinema in Maine, and and he nice. went there. He he, I think he took his nephew along. They had a big bucket of popcorn and the soda, and uh, yeah, he. I wasn't there. I was still editing the movie, but we had somebody from the studio who was sitting in the back row and I was getting text updates. Stephen King just jumped. He laughed at the joke. So every single bit, so I, I knew that it was going well. And then he, at the end of the screening, he sent this, this lovely like, essay about how much he loved the movie, shouting out all the performances and the design and all sorts of, all sorts of things. And just really, he'd taken a lot of care and thought. Um, and it was, yeah, it was amazing. It was, it was, that was, you know, even if even if no one saw the movie or everyone hated the movie, that's 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 the opinion that mattered. And he, at the end of this essay, said, "You know, the studio would be fucking idiots to not release this on the big screen," <laughs> which is like a great thing to have Stephen King say about your movie. And uh, you know, not that that was necessarily the 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 thing that swung it, but it certainly did not hurt. And uh, yeah, around um, just after just after Christmas, we we heard the official word that it was going theatrical, which is amazing and totally the way that you should be watching this movie and people can watch it when it hits cinemas in the uk on june the second go and see this film on the big screen as soon as possible because it'll be great with an audience i'm no doubt no doubt well talking of the big screen rob you are about to travel to another dimension a dimension of pure cinema you are our guide we are your audience let's go on a trip to the movies so, we push open the doors to our temple of film and find ourselves in the foyer. There's an excited buzz, as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. It's your perfect cinema trip, Rob. Who have you picked, living or dead, to go with you? I'll just, I'll go with Stephen King, because I never met him. This would be a great way to meet him. I can sit in silence and, like, try and control my shaking. Do you, would you enjoy, I mean, I guess as long as you're not screening The Shining, uh, that would be a perfect trip. I would love to watch The Shining with him. Wouldn't that be fascinating? 
Do you think, do you not think he'd be, I th- I, he must be. I'd love to hear a blow by blow of like, if he could be just kind of commenting on the whole, on it the whole time. I'd love to hear him pick it, pick it to pieces. Yeah. I mean, I guess what if you came out going, do you know what? The man has a point. You know, what? I watched it. I watched the, um, I, I'd grown up on the European cut, you know, the one that we get here in the UK. Yeah. I watched the American cut recently for the first time. They showed it at the BFI. I thought it was kind of bad. Remind me the big differences between There's the like American 40 cut. 40 minutes of extra stuff in the American cut. The American cut has like the skeletons covered in cobwebs. It's got the bit at the beginning where they talk about Jack's drinking and like, it's, uh, just all the stuff you don't need. And there's, there's a lot of stuff. You can tell that Kubrick's like really obsessed with the Steadicams. There's lots of, there's lots of really long shots of the actors looking uncomfortable while they just walk places <laughs> and the Steadicam follows them. And it's like, it's not, it, I mean, the bits that are good are really good, but the, all the, all the new stuff that was cut out of the European cut is really bad. I'm surprised that he doesn't like the American cut because if it mentions Jack's drinking up front, wasn't that his biggest problem with, I mean, the the version that Kubrick put on screen, which was that Jack just seems evil from the off and there's no addressing the fact that this is a man tormented by his alcoholism. Yes. Yeah, that was the thing. Although, I I mean, it's a weird one. It's almost like I I feel like you can't judge The Shining by normal movie standards because it's just this kind of monolithic thing. doesn't make sense on conventional terms. Jack... Jack Nicholson's performance is completely wild, mm. but it's also kind of perfect. I mean, it is. I mean, yeah, w- without, without a doubt. Yeah. And, you know, you obviously, every movie comes with its off-screen off, off horror stories and you go, whoa. But then um, Shelley Duvall came out recently and went, no, actually, Jack Nicholson was lovely because I think there was a rumor that actually he was quite into Jack and difficult yeah. to work with. But she was like, no, he was, he was a dream. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's like completely not, condoning the way that Kubrick treated her on the set but like when you watch that that's pure terror on screen there's no there's no faking that it's mm. like she's she's in a state of complete like hysteria but after 100 and whatever takes he made her do and it's really upsetting to watch and you know the ethics of that aside it's a really powerful performance i mean putting your own movie to one side for a moment yeah. um you are sitting with stephen king so what to your mind, is the greatest big screen. Well, that comes back later. That's, okay. that's in my retrospective. Uh, that's in my retrospective. All right, so. good. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right, we'll leave that there for the moment. Right, we look up in the foyer. There's a clock on the wall. It reads a specific time. What time of day have we gone to the cinema? I like to go in the daytime when there's not many people around. So let's say it's like, it's like 11 o'clock in the morning. Okay, 11. You like a quiet cinema? I like, I like a quiet cinema, not so much rustling and popcorn eating. Okay, because you're a massive film fan, so, yeah. you know. Well, then you've got the whole day for it as well. I imagine we're going to cram a lot of movies in this day. That's, that's good. So, but, I mean, like you say, it's a quiet cinema, and we've already talked about the idea that certain movies, not every movie, but certain movies do benefit from that communal experience. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I think probably the audience will... As the movies go on, more and more audience will join us and we'll get more raucous as the day gets on. Okay. We'll get drunker and drunker and we'll eventually be, <laughs> be rowdy, rowdy idiots by the end. Because you live in LA now. I mean, do you find, I mean, obviously, I, I imagine the answer is yes, but the, the, the difference between US audiences in a theatre and British audiences in a cinema here. Oh, yeah. I mean, American audiences are so loud. It's great. Mm. I remember the first time, the first movie I ever saw in LA when I first moved to LA was Annabelle Creation. And it was a blast. I was so jet lagged and I was dipping in and out of consciousness and I didn't know what was going on. But every time Annabelle was on screen, everyone whooped and threw popcorn. 
<laughs> now, did you say that you were you were in the theatre when they screened The Boogeyman as a test screening? Yes, I was sat at, sat at the back. So this must have been quite a novel experience for you, because obviously, although you may have done it since, Host was a movie that you, you couldn't ever watch with an audience. Yeah. It's a different thing. It's weird, because Host actually got a little cinema release. The BFI played it a little bit once lockdown ended. And it's a different movie in the cinema. You know, it's like at home when you're on your own, you're watching on your laptop. It's properly terrifying. In the cinema, the jumps work, and, it, and it's kind of fun, but it's not, it doesn't... Um, it doesn't have that same kind of buildup of anxiety that you have when you watch it at home. It's more of a kind of roller coaster ride. You know, you, you get the scare, but then you look and you see you're in a room full of people and you kind of look to the person next to you and laugh it off. So it's, it's an interesting one. It definitely changes the dynamic. The Blair Witch Project was the big one for me because I watched that the, the weekend it came out at Camden Odeon and we watched the whole thing. And obviously, there'd been so much hype about that movie. And at the very end, he's standing in the corner mm. and then back. It goes to black. And some wag in the middle of the theatre, the minute that happened, as you settle in with this end, goes, what, that's it? And everyone burst out laughing and it ruined the movie for me. Oh. And I've tried to, tried to watch it since on my own. It's a movie that I have to turn off because I find it too scary on my own. It made me cry the first time I watched it. I was so scared it made me cry. And I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it for, for 10 years. And then... Uh, me and me and Jed and um, and our friend Elaine ran this. We went, when I was living in London, we ran this thing called the London Video Club, where we would screen movies from X rental blockbuster VHS tapes on the big on the big screen um, at the Genesis Cinema, and uh, and we played the Blair Witch Project, and it was the first time I was um, watching it in ten years, and I cried again. I was, ah! I was so scared, <laughs> so good. Okay, you've booked the cinema. Tickets for our trip, Rob. Where are we sitting in the auditorium? I sit on the aisle normally because uh, I've got the world's tiniest walnut bladder and oh. I'll need to duck out. So. You and me both, my friend. Okay, you know, the most popular answer to that question is the middle of the middle, obviously. And I'm like, I'm always like, but social anxiety, having to push past like yeah. 20 people going, excuse me, excuse me, twice over. Yeah. What if you're like surrounded by the loudest? You can't move, you can't like. And then you, if you want to get up and go to the bathroom, you've got all this anxiety about, well, I'm going to climb over them. What point should I do it? You inevitably pick the moment where everything goes quiet. You know? I mean, this is, a very, this, is, this is a very first world issue, but I can't go to premieres when I get invited to premieres because they don't let you pick your seat. And I'm like, I just can't. Thank you for the invitation. But if I'm trapped, I will not enjoy your movie. I went to, I got invited to the Aquaman premiere mm. and, um, and had, had, drunk a couple of pints beforehand and I was just in it. That movie's like six hours long and I was weeing the whole time. <laughs> and I kept, I was on the row with, uh, with Jason Momoa and Patrick Wilson. And I, kept, I every time I needed to wee, I had to go past them and step on their toes. <laughs> and they were both really lovely about it, but it was, it's, that's a lot of anxiety. Like, do I, t do I step on Jason Momoa's toes for the third time during his movie? And that was the first time he'd seen it as well. Oh, this was the one at uh, the Empire, Leicester Square. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I hosted that. Do you remember the moment where he came out on stage and snapped Aquaman's trident in two over his knee? I do remember that. Yeah, I got, I got to watch, and I'm sure Jason Momoa did not know, but that was the actual prop trident from the film. <laughs> yeah, and there was one guy whose job it was to ensure the safety of that trident, and I watched a man, like, the soul dri drip out of his ears. Like, he looked like he was going to cry as that happened. Oh, God, it's probably, probably worth more now it snapped in two. I mean, yeah, it's got a history now. 
All right, I'm going to put you on the aisle. I love it. I'm an isler as well. Right, the air. This is the final thing we're going to get before we make our way to the auditorium. The air is full of wonderful smells. All manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available at the various counters. What are you choosing to eat? You know what? This is probably sacrilege, but since I've lived in America, I've really got to like popcorn slathered in butter. Yeah. Like every time I eat popcorn over here, it feels kind of dry. So it doesn't exist over here. I've I've done investigation. I'll bring my own butter. <laughs> oh, this is your this is your dream cinema. We can yeah. we can set up a a buttery popcorn stand. But you're right. It's 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 a dream to actually try that. I've never tried it. But every American guest we have who comes on goes I, butter always. Yeah, I mean it's it's heavenly. I mean it leaves you like you have to watch the movie like this because you don't want to touch anything. Your buttery fingers. But yeah, probably buttery popcorn. Buttery popcorn. Are you taking a, a drink with you? I mean, obviously you're on the aisle, so you can actually have the biggest soda in the world if you want it. Probably just a water. Big, big water. Really? Just, yeah. a, just a water? Yeah, probably a water. Maybe as the day goes on, the alcohol content might rise. But Okay. Do you want it delivered to your seat or do you enjoy going to the foyer between films? Because we can have beers like ferried in for you. I like, I like going to the foyer between films. I like getting the kind of buzz of people's response. Okay, right then. Foyer beers are going to be ice cold for you. Now, is that it? Are we saying buttery popcorn, some water to begin with, moving on to the beers later? You don't want the hot dog. You don't want the nachos. You don't want any pick and mix? I'm not a big... Oh, pick and mix. Maybe pick and mix. Maybe pick and mix on standby. I'm not a big eater in the cinema, but I love a bit of pick and mix. Horror seems to be the best genre for popcorn, though. It just It's like you always imagine horror and popcorn go hand in hand. That's sort of like that moment where... You're feeding it into your mouth, and then suddenly something's about to happen, and your hand inadvertently just pauses between popcorn bucket and mouth. Literally, somebody, somebody at the test screen like threw the popcorn, <laughs> threw the popcorn. Yeah, it's the most gratifying moment. That's got to be the best thing it's to actually best. see that in real life yeah, for your movie. I didn't think that happened in real life. <laughs> it's like people who do spit takes. It only happens in movies. <laughs> All right. I just, I, if there is one thing that never fails to make me laugh in any movie. It could be the worst comedy in the world. And if there's a spit take, that it just cracks me up. I don't yeah, know why. It's comedy gold. Yeah. All right, then. We've got everything we need. Let's leave the foyer and head down the corridor towards the auditorium. Now, this corridor's looking a little bare at the moment. So what I'm going to do, <coughs> excuse me, is put up some posters mm-hmm. that celebrate some of your movie memories to decorate it. And the first poster we're putting up depicts your fondest movie memory. You know what, this is a recent one, but um, this movie genuinely like changed my life, which is Scorsese's The Irishman. Okay. Which I saw, I didn't see it on Netflix, I saw it in the cinema. Ah. And, um, and it just like, it, it was just, it was just before, just before the pandemic hit and, and, you know, everyone's lives changed, but this movie really did change my life. I'd just been working on probably the worst job of my entire life, just this kind of awful TV show where I was surrounded by all these just surrounded by people who didn't have my best interest at heart and these people that weren't my friends. And then that movie is so much about, you know, if you live your life on other people's terms, where do you end up? And, you know, the, the ending of that movie and how um, isolated he ends up being at the, at the end, that final, that final scene where he has to ask the nurse to leave the door open. It made, me, it, made me, it made me kind of reconsider what I wanted to do with my life. You know, and it, it, it's a movie about it's a movie about it's a movie about who your real friends are and how infrequently real friends come about in your life. And you know, I've been doing I've been doing kind of like jobbing TV work 
for the last few years. And it was kind of like, it kind of resembled what I wanted to do as a kid when I started getting into movies, but it wasn't it. It wasn't feeling creative anymore. Um, and I was about to go on to another TV show. And then fortunately, the world ended. And we all got locked in, indoors. And, uh, and then I made Host, which was a movie made completely with people I love in this amazing creative space. Um, and it just completely rewired my, rewired my brain and made me think that's the, that, that's the thing I've got to follow. I've got to work with people who make me feel that kind of like electric buzz of, of creativity. I've got to work with people who I want to, you know, my life's ticking away. I've got to spend it with the right people and making things that I'm proud of. And that's that, that, what, what sounds fantastic to go back to what you were saying earlier. Like this is your first studio movie. So it's the first movie that, you know, you have someone looking over your shoulder mm. um, i'm assuming everything went well and you, you brought it in under budget and or on budget at least yeah yeah no i mean it, i was fully expecting i was spoiling for a fight you know i was i was thought i was gonna have to like fight tooth and claw for everything but it was like everyone the studio the producers it was a whole new team of people the only person i was able to bring on from my normal uk team was my composer patrick johnson um and everyone was was brilliant they're my they're my team now you know every movie i make in america i want to, i want this same team that's fantastic. Yeah. That's fantastic. And how good that you saw the Irishman in the cinema as well, because yeah. like so many people, again, it's just a different experience um, yeah. on the small screen. And a movie like that, you know, it could have, I know it's four hours or whatever it was, but it could have gone on and on for me. And on Netflix, I would have got distracted. I would have gone on Twitter, but like it was, uh, yeah, I was a captive audience. Started watching that 11 a.m. <laughs> same time. It's. Um, I think it's the immersiveness, isn't it? There's another Netflix movie. I, 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 I didn't see it at the cinema, but people who saw it at the cinema were like, this is fantastic at the cinema. And I saw it at home and I just got distracted. It was Roma, um, yeah. the Alfonso Cuaron movie, just because you are, you are required to immerse yourself in the world, in that mm -hmm. case, 1970s Mexico. Yeah. yeah. I watched that in the cinema as well. I don't think I could have watched that at home. Mm. Lucky. Yeah. Lucky you. All right, let's carry on down the corridor. Our next poster depicts your worst movie memory. Um, so I, this isn't, this isn't a bad movie, but this is a, this is an amazing movie, but this is the worst time I've ever had in the cinema, which is watching Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. What happened? Um, well, I, I got a real problem with heights. Like I used to be just a panicked flyer. I used to like, I, every, every flight I was on, I used to end up like literally holding the hand of the stranger next to me as we, as we took off and, and landed because I was so afraid of plummeting to a fiery death. And this was the uh, Ghost Protocol came out right in the kind of peak of my of my flying height anxiety. And uh, there's a scene, there's a scene in that movie where Tom Cruise climbs the tallest building in Dubai with um, magnetic gloves that 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 um, that fail and falter. And he and you know it's Tom Cruise, so everyone in the cinema knew he was doing that shit. And uh, and I had a full blown panic attack couldn't breathe like literally was dizzy i basically had to crawl my way out of the cinema and i remember like literally crawling out of the crawling out of the cinema and then sitting in the foyer for about 20 minutes just like regulating my breathing and then i went back in and watched the rest of the movie um and uh it was humiliating and i missed half of the movie and it was like it was uh it's a great movie i've seen it since i've managed to brave it since but it was the moment when the glove starts to the one of his gloves fails and he's just hanging on by the one glove and I just like I realised I hadn't breathed I hadn't taken in a breath for a full 30 seconds and was just like yeah not to put a positive spin on what sounds like a horrifying experience 
but the power of cinema, huh? No, exactly. It's a gr- it's a it's a great memory. I'm glad it's on my wall of uh, of movie memories. But boy, wow. Um, are you better with flying now? Did, did was there a technique that you used to overcome it, or did it just dissipate naturally? That I fit? think it just dissipated naturally. I think I'm generally less anxious than I was. I think also I just I just do it so much. I've been exposed to it. Um, and there's also like I was on a flight. I was on a flight a few years ago that, that went through just the worst turbulence possible. It was like a, a flying to Germany or something, and, and the the whole plane, it felt like it was dropping whole football fields at a time, and all of the um, uh, overhead compartments popped open and suitcases were rolling. It was like, it was properly like a, like a, it was like that scene in Alive where they crash into the Alps. And, um, and of course, like on the, on the tannoy, they were, they were announcing everything in German. So as far as I was concerned, they were telling us we were all plummeting to our doom. And then they do the translation, which is like, it's fine, everything's fine. But it was literally suitcases falling and people screaming. And, and after that, like, I'd been weirdly kind of uh, zen about it. You've lived through the worst thing possible other than actually crashing. I just, and weirdly, this is, I know it connects to the movies thing. I just, I put Casablanca on my little screen tried to zone it out and I, I was like I'm just gonna die watching Humphrey Bogart <laughs> and I was kind of fine with that so I know that's my coping mechanism oh, wow wow yeah uh yeah I mean I, I I don't have a fear of flying I do know that people are more emotional on planes everyone goes I really cried at this movie on a plane and that is because all humans have that fear that you have that we just bury inside our psyche of you know we're aware we're on a metal tube 35,000 feet should not here. work yeah big heavy metal bird <laughs> shooting through the sky all right. Well, uh, the poster for Ghost Protocol is going up <laughs> as your worst movie memory. Right. Our next poster depicts the last performance that brought you to tears. Um, so I was thinking about this, and I think that think the last performance that really moved me was um, Barry Keegan in Banshees of Inner Sheeran. Oh, yeah. Um, I thought it was just heartbreaking. There's this one scene where he's um, he goes up to Carrie Condon and and asks her if she could ever see herself going out with a with a kid like him and she's she kind of gently lets him down you just see you know he's this kind of he's this kind of awkward wounded abused little boy and you just see the light go out in his eyes and uh, he plays it so so beautifully it's all so internal but he he, he his his eyes let you into just this this um what's the line he says it's, oh well there goes that dream <laughs> yeah. such a beautifully sad line mm. um and I just yeah, just think he's he's wonderful in that movie. That's it's a that was one of my favorite movies of last year. And in fact, um, um, Colin Farrell would be another one in that in that movie. Colin Farrell has just perpetually sad eyes in that movie, and he's just so he's 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 turned into this. I mean, he was always such a brilliant actor, but I love these roles that he's doing these last few years. Yeah, I think it's his monologue when he finally faces. Brendan Gleeson's character and he talks about you know that how is it not enough that he's a nice person he thought that was the point of humanity was just to be nice and you're like wow yeah yeah and it's an interesting movie about like what we and especially especially not to keep bringing everything back to the pandemic although that, that seems to be my thing mm. like it's an interesting movie coming out of the pandemic about what we what we owe to other people you know what level of um what level of politeness we owe to other people, what level of um, loyalty we owe to other people and what we owe to ourselves. You know, if you, if you decide you don't want a person in your life, what's that, what's that social contract and how much do you need to honor that? It's an interesting, I just, I thought that, I thought that movie was fantastic through and through. Mm. And the, the, the performance you picked and indeed the scene you've picked, which you don't know 
the first time you watch it, but having watched it multiple times. And, you know, if you haven't seen it, spoiler, but, uh, mm. but that is the last time we see him alive. Yeah. Yeah. Which just makes it, uh, upon watching it again, even more tragic. Mm-hmm. You get the sense that that's, that's one of the, the few things that he's holding on to, this kind of full-on hope. I mean, it, as impossible as it is, that, that he kind of, he needed, that, he needed that, that dream to cling on to. I agree with your movie choice. I personally am going to pick a different performance that brought me to tears. Oh, yeah. Which one? Daisy, the donkey. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, I cry so much. I'm unbelievable. <laughs> I'm just, I'm one of those people that I can deal with human tragedy weirdly. And there are more people, this isn't a unique thing to me, but animal tragedy in film somehow impacts me so much more. Oh, yeah. Were you traumatized by never ending story as a kid? <sighs> Artex. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. That horse, that scene. So upsetting. Just, Artex, Artex, when Atreo is trying to drag him out and he just won't move because he's overcome by the swamp of sadness or sorrow. Yeah. God, well, good. Uh, I'm I'm glad we've (laughs) both teary-eyed now. A friend of mine showed it to her kids recently and they were like, she could see the trauma forming on their faces about Artex. She said, oh, yeah, what you don't know is there's a tunnel under the swamp and Artex walks out the other side. Kids need that trauma. (laughs) That's why we're such well-adjusted humans. (laughs) All right, I'm putting up a poster of the Banshees of Inner Sharon. Right, our final poster depicts your unpopular movie opinion. Um, Well, this goes back to childhood. Well, in fact, this this is a movie that I just didn't watch as a kid and I think everyone else did watch as a kid, and that maybe explains my um, distaste for it, which is The Goonies, mm-hmm. which I just, I just think is an unpleasant movie. I think it's like, it's like having uh, uh, an obnoxious, bullying child like pull your ear open and scream into, <laughs> into your face for two hours. Uh, In particular, which child? Well, all of them, all of them. They're just like everything. It's like Richard, Don- you know, and I like I like Richard Donner, but it, it's like he just told them all, like, just yell all of your lines as flatly as possible and as loud as you can. And and I think guess he thought maybe it was cute on the day and maybe it was, but it doesn't translate on screen. It's just it's like it's, it's such an abrasive, awful movie. So when did you when did you see it? How recently? So you definitely didn't see it, it in the eighties then. When- no, I watched it. I watched it um, two years ago okay. for the first time. So I think I just missed, I've got a bit of an 80s gap. You know, I, I only watched Ghostbusters for the first time like four years ago. And? So I like Ghostbusters more. I don't love Ghostbusters in the same way that everyone does. But I've got, a, I, there's just a bit of an 80s blind spot, which I get is probably just me. It's, it's you know, it's not you, it's me. I, I, I understand, but how, how, I don't know, I, I should ask, when were, you, when were you born? So were you, did you miss the 80s? I was 92. So, right. But then still, I mean, there's a lot of 80s movies that I did grow up on, you know, like I was all about, for me, it was like Indiana Jones was a, was a big one. Um, I know that they're a bit earlier, but the Star Wars, Star Wars I, mean, I kind of, I kind of got into Star Wars, not, not hugely, but there's, yeah, there's just this whole kind of like period of, of 80s kind of. And but like E.T. is one of my favorite movies, so I don't know. Maybe I'm just I, I've got selective blindness to eighties movies. I really wish that the Goonies featured the giant squid that they were going to fight at the end. Were they gonna? There was meant to be a giant squid that they fought, and I don't know how good it would have looked. I'm not sure if there is any footage available, and they just went, "This looks bad." Yeah. But I just feel it needs a monster at the end. It sort of it peters it out. Kind of fizzles the... as well, yeah, doesn't it? Mm. And I kind of lost track of what they were. I guess they were after some gold or something. 
Yes. Yeah, I think one eyed one eyed Willie's treasure. Yes, I had my fingers in my ears, so I didn't <laughs> I couldn't tell. But uh fun subtext. Um obviously data. Kehi Kwan uh, is a huge star in because of um the uh God, it's escaped me. What's the movie that every the uh, uh, the everything everything everywhere all at once? Jesus, that's thank you. Yes. God, wow. <laughs> well, that's jet lag. I'm back from LA as well. That's yeah. my excuse. Yeah, um, I haven't seen I haven't seen that movie. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's okay. that's my big blind spot from last year. Well, his lawyer uh, in real life now uh, yes. because he left acting is Chunk from the Goonies. No way. Yeah, his entertainment lawyer. I love that. Yeah. There you go. I've tried to put a positive spin on the Goonies for yeah. you. Yeah. No, I, I, all of those actors have grown up to do great things. They just weren't doing it back then. So when we, did you, uh, talking of movies that you saw in the 80s, um, what was your first encounter with horror? Was there one movie that sparked this lifelong love of the genre? Um, it doesn't have to be an no, 80s movie. No, I think movie. I was just drawn to, like I was always drawn to the most kind of horrific sequences in movies. Like I was always really obsessed with like, in Aladdin, there's the bit where the cave kind of emerges and forms the lion's mouth, which I thought was really scary. And it was that kind of bad early CGI. And the same thing with um, Hercules, where he fights the Hydra. Like, I was obsessed with that and the decapitations. And so I was always drawn to the most grotesque version of, of um, uh, kids' cartoons. And then, you know, and then I think it was, I think it was just, like, I was, my parents tried to raise me with no TV for, for a while. Wow. Um, like, I would, and it was like no TV, no sugar, no salt. Like it was really like, you know, it was, it was, they tried to raise me in this very bland existence and especially like no horror movies, nothing scary. So like the Stephen King, you know, short stories that I snuck in, I was like always sneaking in um, horror VHSs. And so it, it, it was like, it was kind of naught to a hundred. Like I wasn't watching anything scary. And then suddenly I was watching Hellraiser and Texas Chainsaw <laughs> Massacre. So like a lot of those formative movies were these, were these like wildly fucked up video nasties that um that i mean most of them and most of them are kind of rubbish that's the thing i mean those movies aren't the hellraiser and texas chains are two of the best ever but a lot of you know i had the video nasties list from the 80s and i was working my way through and a lot of them have these great terrifying violent covers and then you put it on it's like it's made for 50 pence and it looks like <laughs> yeah, it looks like trash um but some of those really stuck with me hellraiser really stuck with me um but Hellraiser stuck with me because it was the first one that I was watching and it was like, it was gory and it was disturbing, but I was watching it and I was like, oh, this is actually a good movie. This is really powerful and profound and kind of beautiful as well. Yeah, and the mythology that Clive Barker yeah. sets up in the film of the Cenobites and you just like, it feels very rich. Like there's a, it, it world yes. builds incredibly well. Yeah, exactly. It didn't, it didn't feel kind of cheap or flippant. It was, uh, yeah, it felt, if, you know, I was into fantasy books and stuff like that and it felt like kind of, a kind of like wildly disturbed version of that. Yeah. Right. That's the final poster we're putting up for on your popular movie opinion is The Goonies. It's a bit rubbish <laughs> or a lot rubbish. Um, okay, we're heading into the auditorium. We're pushing open our final set of doors. So before we get to the film you've picked, we're going to play the trailer for the movie you are most looking forward to seeing at the cinema. Oh, okay. So this is, um, this is a horror movie, which I think, you know, and I, I probably shouldn't say this, but I think this is going to be the horror movie of the year. This is what I've heard is um, Talk to Me by Michael and Danny Philip, who, Philip Howell. Okay. Who, who um, they're, they're, they're YouTube content creators, as much as I hate that word, turned horror movie directors. And they had this movie premiere at Sundance, and it's all that anyone has been talking to me about all year. It's meant to be absolutely terrifying. 
and I saw the trailer recently, and it looks like my new favorite movie. Um, it's uh, it's based on it's this it's from what I've gleaned, it's about uh, uh, a kind of viral um, ritual that these teens are partaking in, whereby they have a kind of shrouded mummy's hand that you grasp and you say, "Talk to me," and the for, for, for a 90 second period of time, you're able to be possessed by the spirit of somebody who's passed away. And then you have to shock yourself out of it. And somebody does that, tries to connect with somebody they've lost and maybe something sticks around. That's what I've gleaned from the, from the trailer and it looks fucking brilliant. Do you think Stephen King's going to enjoy that trailer? You know what? I think he will. And he's, you know, he's always really good at that. Like he's always, he knows, he knows the power his words hold, especially for horror movie makers. And so he, he's always shouting out, um, he's always shouting out kind of indie horrors. You know, when I'm but like with Host and Dashcam, like we, he, he sent word that he'd love those movies and um, it just meant the world. So yeah, he, I'm, I'm sure he will. I'm sure he'll be a big cheerleader for that. That, that the, the worm creature towards the end of Dashcam is magnificent. <laughs> I love that. Shout out Dan Martin, who's uh, the best, the best uh, SFX man in the UK. That must have been a lot of fun to make that movie. Batshit crazy has never applied too much to a movie. That was a blast. That was a blast. We made that just two months after we finished Host. So we were just suddenly, after being inside staring at screens, we were suddenly, you know, in a in a wet field in Norfolk, pulling somebody's head off and spurting blood around. It was amazing. <laughs> right then, we're playing the trailer for Talk to Me. Next, we're going to play what you consider cinema's most shocking moment. So. This is turning into a bit of a Scorsese fest, um, and I really tried to pick a moment that wasn't Scorsese or Tarantino, um, but then I just gave up. And so my my moment is going to be uh, Scorsese's movie, The Color of Money, um, and the scene is uh, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has uh, he's uh, he's kind of betrayed Paul Newman. They, you know, they're going on a hustling road trip. This is his sequel to The Hustler. Um, they're going on a hustling road trip um, where uh, and 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 Tom Cruise kind of breaks away from from Paul Newman and goes and shows off his pool prowess by beating everyone in this bar, um, therefore you know giving away the game. And Paul Newman comes into the bar and sees uh, Tom Cruise pot every single ball on the table in a row. And Scorsese has Werewolves of London playing as the camera circles the table, getting faster and faster and faster, and it just totally sweeps you up in the in the um, in the thrill of of, um, of 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 Tom Cruise's kind of pageantry, and it's such a brilliant moment, and it's one of those moments that that elevates a movie like that that could have been, um, you know, a deeply inferior movie to The Hustler, which is one of the greatest movies ever made, and makes it, you know, it, it's 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 less a Scorsese in one respect, but it's also like a, kind of a perfect movie, and it's moments like that that only Scorsese can do. I mean, to talk about Tom Cruise, you mentioned him doing the Burj Khalifa in Dubai for real. And as anyone who knows Tom Cruise, he does things for real. He was doing it back then. He makes every single one of those shots himself. Yeah, it's insane. Yeah, there's no hiding it, including one he does one-handed. Insane. All right, we're playing that scene from The Colour of Money as cinema's most shocking moment. Oh, no, shocking moments. Oh, sorry, I thought that was the music moment. Well, here's the thing. Okay. So, we, I, no, we're spinning around. So, right, that's fine, yeah. Here's the thing. My, my most shocking moment is uh is also a scorsese okay good <laughs> can i guess what it is because i was like i get yeah. that I, get, I can i can see that you're emotionally shocked in that moment no, no, no. I, was, I thought that was your interpretation of the question is it i'm, I'm gonna guess and i don't want to preempt Go. you but is it um 
Joe Pesci's character killing Spider in The Goodfellas. Oh no, it's not. But it does involve Joe Pesci. Oh, okay. No, my most shock. So that was my that was my favorite musical moment in cinema. My most shocking moment in cinema. Yeah. And this is surprising, I guess, for somebody who's watched so many video nasties. But it's actually um, Joe Pesci's death. Spoiler, sorry. In Casino. Oh, oh okay, yeah. Yeah. Um, that that movie is um, that movie is fueled on voiceovers. It's it's just this kind of tapestry of voiceovers. Robert De Niro, Joe Pesci, um, some of the minor characters, Sharon Stone's character, they all have voiceovers that take you through this movie, which is like this three-hour magic trick of of um, of style and and um, and kind of this bravara filmmaking. Um, and you get as the movie's winding down, and everyone is starting to get picked off one by one as the um, the prosecutors move in. Um, Joe Pesci's voiceover takes you into a uh, a field in the middle of nowhere, and as he's as he's uh, delivering his voiceover, somebody comes up behind him with a baseball bat and whacks him around the back of the head, interrupting his voiceover, and he's then um, bludgeoned to the point of to the point of uh, being unrecognizable. Being unrecognizable, yeah. a blood, he's beaten to a bloody pulp and then buried alive, um, in a scene that's just. I mean, one one of the reasons I love it so much, and I love it, and, and this is a lot of what I do as a horror filmmaker, is like using people's familiarity with, um, with the cinematic language against them. You know, in a horror movie, you're doing it because everyone knows the various ways in which they've been scared in the past, and you're looking for ways to, to kind of subvert their expectations. Whereas here, the reason it's so shocking is because, you know, voiceover is normally. Um, a voiceover is normally something that happens kind of retrospectively. A character is safe because they're doing it from, you know, you know, they're in the little recording booth afterwards, you know, reflecting back on their life. And Scorsese does that brilliant move of <laughs> having his voiceover interrupted mid-flow um, and then just cutting to, to cutting to this kind of um, painfully real scene with no music. There's nothing dramatic about it. It's just this, this, this tormented, extended, um, brutal death scene of a character who, who, but most of the movie felt indestructible. I was just going to say that I think that's why it's so affecting because he has been this powerful figure and he meets such a, a, a just a basic end. Mm. Yeah, and there's a great animatronic as he gets the um, as he gets the the dirt caked on his face. They've got an animatronic Joe Pesci that's gasping in these long pulls of air as he as he gets soil uh, thrown in his face. That's a doozy. That's cinema's most shocking moment we're putting, uh, putting up on screen. Joe Pesci's death from Casino. Uh, now, the movie moment that makes you literally or metaphorically pump your fist in the air is what we're going to play next. So I get really swept up in any sort of sports movie, especially boxing movies. Um, there's, like I remember when I was watching uh, The Fighter, the David O. Russell movie, the bit there's a bit in the, the you know the final fight at the end where the, the fight starts going Mark Wahlberg's way and I remember I was and I was watching it I was watching it alone in the cinema um and I just let out this involuntary whoop I just like I couldn't help myself and everyone looked at me and I just was so swept up in it um there's not not going to be the fighter it's actually going to be um Gavin O'Connor's movie Warrior mm. which I think is probably it's probably the greatest um kind of underdog sports movie ever made um it's just this it's this incredible balance of of kind of formulaic um formulaic underdog story with brilliant with a brilliant script incredible filmmaking and 
the two of the two of the best performances of the last decade in um, Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton, and um, I, it's a movie that makes me pump my fist multiple times. It's not the, actually the final fight is less of a fist pump moment and more of just a kind of you know ugly cry, um, you know, you know, clutching a pillow. Um, but there's yeah, so many so many of those fights. The the moment there's a moment specifically where Joel Edgerton's um, fighting somebody in the, the the backyard of a bar and turns the fight around and you realize you realize what he can do that's just so um it's set up so brilliantly and uh, and paid off so wonderfully yeah i mean tom hardy is a a beast in that movie both yeah. in terms of his physique but the performance he gives mm-hmm. i think what i liked about it is the fact that in that final fight I, I didn't know who was going to win, and, yeah. and, and to manage to create that jeopardy in that in the narrative, in the story, in your writing, that that you're like, I wonder who is going to win, because mm-hmm. you know there's a pot of money that both of them need, um, and you're like, well, is one going to give some to the other if they? Won't? Yeah. I didn't know who was going to win. Yeah, and it's just you know I've got a I've got a brother, and I relate to that, but you know that that kind of um, uh, the walls you build, the walls of masculinity that you that you build up, that then. You know, in that final fight, just have to be beaten out of Tom Hardy to the point where he'll he'll hug his brother. It's just so beautiful. Yeah, what is it? Is it his arm? You sit, you hear his arm break. His, arms bre- his arm breaks, and Joel Edgerton has to punch his broken arm <laughs> until until he'll accept accept his shoulder and actually lean on another human being and not just be this feral lone wolf. It's <laughs> a stunning movie. Great stuff. All right. Multiple fist-pumping moments. We're playing from Warrior. And the final thing we are going to do before we get to the movie you're screening for us tonight is play, through our lovely Dolby Atmos speakers, the line or piece of dialogue from a movie that most affected you. It's not a specific line, but the the, the scene that immediately came to mind is... Um, I'm just going to look up the pronunciation of the actor's name. It's uh, It's from... Call me by your name. It's a scene where Michael Schulberg oh, yeah. um, speaks to Timothy Chalamet, who's just undergone his first heartbreak, and it's this beautifully understated scene where um, he kind of um, he kind of contextualizes this heartbreak against the span of of your entire life, and he talks about his own regrets, and he talks about how you know we're only briefly on this earth as these young, beautiful things. Um, and that, that what Timothy Chalamet's character had with Army Hammer is, is, is it hurts, but it's also something to be, to be cherished. And it's something that, um, it's something that he, he would have regretted for the rest of his life had he not pursued it. And it's just, it's this beautifully understated scene where they, they, it's and it's and it's all about what's what's not said as well. He just kind of hints at, um, hints at his own his own regret, and the performances are so beautiful. And it just it 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 brings that movie home in such a way, and sets up the final shot, which I think might be one of the greatest final shots in film history. Um, as you see that that lesson that's been imparted kind of land on Timothy Chalamet. The final shot is just this this beautiful close up of his face as he stares into the fire. And you see, you see the lesson learnt. You see, you see it kind of soak into his being, and it's uh, it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful movie. And that's that's one of the that's one of the great scenes. That's an incredible 
choice for that answer. I know the scene very well, and Michael Stuhlbarg is just, he's so warm in that scene. And I, I watched Dope Sick not that long ago about mm. the oxycodone thing. And you know, you know an actor's quality when they can play such polar opposites. He's just pure evil in Dope mm -hmm. Sick. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, he could, he could do anything. Oh. You, did you see, um, uh, uh, what, was the, what was the Campbell one called? He's fucking terrifying in that. Uh, the the um the, with uh, the other one with Timothy Chalamet, um, oh, Bones and all. Yes, yeah, he's really Michael Schulberg. Schulberg is, yeah. is fucking great in that as well. Completely, kind of like Flintstones looking redneck cannibal <laughs> character. It's so scary. <laughs> well, with that, we've arrived at the movie that you have decided out of all other movies, Rob, to play tonight for yourself and Stephen King in this auditorium. What? movie are we watching well you know what? i think i think as we've walked down this hallway we looked at all these movie posters i think actually we spent a full uh 12 hours it's actually 11 p.m now which i think is probably the better time to watch this movie thinking about it um the movie that i would pick is what i would consider and since i'm here with my buddy stephen king this is the movie I would consider the greatest Stephen King movie ever made, which is Brian De Palma's Carrie. Which, um, which this is this is a new one, and I think this is probably my top ten movies of all time now. Um, and I watched it again. I watched it when I was a kid, and I really loved it. But I remembered it like I was just so blown away by the style, the split screen, and the the you know the fiery finale. I didn't remember much more about it, and then I went to see it um, a couple of weeks ago at the print uh, no the um what's it called the new beverly cinema tarantino cinema in la at a midnight screening and um just one of the greatest cinema experiences of my entire life I, I forgot just how um just how good the movie is just how funny it is just how compassionate it is just how deeply felt it is it's not just an exercise in style it really it, it for me it's the perfect king adaptation because it balances um it balances the kind of like the style and the imprint of the filmmaker with the kind of um, the, the, the empathy and humanism of King. Um, you know, I think one of the reasons that, that King doesn't like The Shining and why The Shining doesn't really feel like a Stephen King adaptation so much as a Kubrick movie is that it's, it's, um, it's, dominated by, it's dominated by Kubrick's aesthetic and his, his, um, his obsessions. Whereas this movie exists both as a perfect De Palma movie with some of the most incredibly stylish um, filmmaking you'll ever see, um, and also is, is so deeply felt and so anchored by this wonderful performance by Sissy Spacek, and also has such a knowing sense of humor that allows Sissy Spacek's understated Carrie White to exist in the same world as um, Piper Laurie's demented mother character, and they both seem to exist quite comfortably comfortably within this universe as well as it's got it's got a great turn by john travolta um nancy allen is brilliant in it it's just it, it's a flawless movie and to go back to what we were talking about at the start finding something fresh to do it has one of the most often imitated jump scares in cinema history at the very end it's a great one it's a great one and it's and and that's all filmed uh, in reverse as well you watch as she walks down the street in that final sequence you see the cars going backwards and the kids playing backwards and it's like, but it's so perfectly executed, it doesn't feel Lynchian. It's just there if you want it. Well, 
What a movie to end on. Brian De Palma's Stephen King adaptation, Carrie. I'm sure Stephen King liked that because he is, I believe, a fan of that movie. I think so. So we're leaving on a high. Stephen King is not going, why the hell did you play me The Shining? I know you <laughs> wanted to hear my opinion, but oh, come on, dude. So the curtains have closed. The guests are milling out, smiling, chatting, and thanking you for taking them on an incredible night out at the movies. But before you go, and I know you've got to leave very soon because you're heading to Comic-Con for a uh, Boogeyman yeah. panel. Mm-hmm. Very exciting. It is time for this week's mystery question as we ask, what's in the box? I saw you with the box. What was in the box? Oh, what's in the box? Okay, so your mystery question this week is, as a master of horror, it's, it's an easy or maybe not easy one, what do you consider the scariest film ever made? Um, you know what? I would have, I would have, until recently, said I've been really boring and said um, the Exorcist. Yeah, the Exorcist scared me profoundly as a child. It was the one. It was the one of two movies that my dad told me I could never ever watch as long as I live. Uh-huh. He said, he said, you know, I know you're going to sneak and watch horror movies at your friend's house. Just don't watch The Silence of the Lambs or The Exorcist. And so when I watched it, I felt like I felt like irrevocably changed watching The Exorcist, and and still get that feeling every time I watch it. But you know, recently um, I'd watched The Texas Chainsaw Massacre as a kid, and it, hadn't, it actually hadn't done very much for me. I wasn't that into it because I was like a bit of a gore hound, and that movie famously doesn't really have any gore in it. It's all implication. It's all sound. Um, and then I got asked to do a, a commentary on the new 4K release. And so I had to watch it again for this commentary. And I was watching it on a plane to New Orleans, when we were sh- which is where we shot The Boogeyman. And, um, and again, this is a common theme, I guess, through my answers. Uh, I found that halfway through, when she, when she wakes up tied to the chair in, the, in that kind of demented um, family dinner scene, I just started having this full-blown panic attack. I had to stop the movie. I had to walk up and down the plane. It's the most distressing movie I think I've ever seen. I had to wait. I had to finish it at my hotel that night. And um, and even then, I had to take it in, in breaks because that movie has that's such an intensity, and the filmmaking is so incredibly good. It's like, it's 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 scuzzy and nasty and dirty, and you feel like it's you've kind of found this can of old film that you shouldn't be watching. But at the same time, the filmmaking is so precise and so brilliant. Toby Hooper is such a master um, that I think. Uh, I think it's going to be another ten years before I watch that movie again because it upset me so much watching it again. I remember the the one the bit that got me because it sort of comes out of the blue and it's such an immediate and sharp moment is where the metal door slides open, the guy is grabbed and it slams shut yeah. again. Yeah, it's just hammered to the head and the yeah. way that he's convulsing. Yeah. Oh God, yes, it's so nasty. It's so. I mean, the way that and, and there's this kind of motif that runs throughout it of the the killing the cattle and the way that they view these 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 teenagers in the van, just just killing them like livestock, and it's 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 such an ugly movie and such a brilliant movie. Well, that is it, Rob. Your taxi has arrived to ferry you back to reality. But before you go, let's recap your perfect night out at the cinema. You are going with Stephen King at 11 a.m., but by the time we get to the movie, it's going to be 11 p.m. You are sitting on the aisle because, like me, you have a weak bladder, which I appreciate. You're having buttery popcorn with maybe some pick and mix and some water, and then you're going to pop into the foyer for some tasty, tasty beers. We are then putting up a poster of what you consider your fondest movie memory, which was watching Scorsese's The Irishman. It's a movie about who your friends really are. 
car. Your worst movie memory is watching Tom Cruise abseil down the Burj Khalifa because you had a panic attack in the cinema. The last performance that brought you to tears was Barry Keoghan's performance in The Banshees of Inner Shirin. And the movie that depicts your unpopular movie opinion poster is a poster for the Goonies. We are then going to be playing the moment that makes you pump your fist in the air which is a montage of those great fist pumping moments from Warrior we're playing a trailer for Talk To Me the upcoming Mummy's Hand movie you're then going to play what you consider cinema's most shocking moment Joe Pesci's fucking awful death in Casino the line of dialogue from a movie that most affected you is Michael Stuhlbarg's speech from Call Me By Your Name to Timothy Chalamet and the music Best use of music in a movie through our Dolby Atmos speakers is Werewolves of London playing in the colour of money as Tom Cruise pots everything. And now it's 11pm. We're watching Brian De Palma's Carrie, which Stephen King bloody loves. Rob, thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. Have you had a good time? I've had the best time. Thank you. And as Rob's cab carries him away from our virtual cinema, off into the distance, we must all leave his movie paradise and return to reality. But to soften the blow, how would you like a pair of tickets for a night out at a very real Odeon cinema? Each week, we give away a pair to someone who leaves us a review of the show on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. The competition is only open to UK residents, and the tickets exclude Odeon Leicester Square and Odeon Lux. And just before I say my final farewell for this episode, don't forget you can find the full video for today's Today's Rob Savage interview and indeed for every guest over on our Trip to the Movies YouTube channel. So head over there, subscribe and help us grow the podcast. Thank you. That really is it. I'll be back next week when another guest fills our cinema with their celluloid dreams as they take us on a trip to the movies. Bye bye. <laughs>